perspective. Uh, just a little bit of a disclaimer this morning, I was looking back in the church records, especially for those of you who might be here for the first time, uh, you might be concerned, is this one of those churches that talks about money a lot and finances and they just want my money and then I can leave once I'm destitute? No, we are not one of those churches. In fact, we have not preached a series on finances in three years, all right? And so about every three years, we, we want to take finances from a biblical perspective because the Bible has a lot to say about our finances. Many years ago, there was a little boy named Matthew. Matthew was about four years old, and he was in a Sunday school class in the farthest room in the church from this particular place in the church. And he had Sunday school class every Sunday morning with a woman named Miss Joan. And at the beginning of Sunday school each morning, Miss Joan would say, who has their offerings for Jesus this morning? And she'd pass around a little brown basket and all of us kids would be excited to put in the quarters that we'd taken out of mommy's purse, uh, the, the dimes, the nickels, and the pennies we'd found in the couch, and we would give our offering to Jesus. I'm here to announce this morning that Miss Joan collected those over the years. She invested them, and we are building a brand new field house <laughs> with the fun. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no. Uh, the funny part is, 28 years later, here I stand as the pastor of the church, and Miss Joan, and you'll, you'll notice the miracle because she is only 29, Miss Joan is uh, now the finance director here at Victory Life, but I remember an invaluable lesson taught to me at a very young age, and it was the way that she phrased it, do you have an offering for Jesus today? It stuck with me. It, it reminded me of who our offerings really go to. Now, in the grand scheme of things, those offerings from those little children back in the day were put in an envelope and taken down a hall and counted by a trustee and deposited in a bank and used for the ministry of the church. But the heart, the heart of what we were doing was not administrative. The heart of what we were being taught was not about worldly finance. The heart of what we were being taught was that when we give and we give to the church, we're really giving to the work of Jesus Christ. And that's the heart we come at today. And I have a message to preach to you and to share with you that may seem tough. Not because I'm gonna speak it in a tough way, that's not my desire, but it may seem tough because we have seen so many abuses in the financial realm from the church or people calling themselves the church of Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you today, when you give in our offering and our tithes and, and you, you put it in the basket, it doesn't go to the pastor's office to be distributed by him. In fact, tomorrow night, you'll elect trustees who oversee those finances so we can do so in a balanced and a healthy way. The people of the church help superintend the finances of God's church. And I'm going to talk about the biblical concept of tithing today, but I want to assure each and every one of you today that your pastoral staff, myself included, never ever looks at the giving record. We don't look at what you give. I don't know what you give, I don't know what you tithe, and I never will, because we wanna have balance. I give those disclaimers today because at the heart of this message I want you to remember is the simple phrase, does anyone have an offering for Jesus? I wanna go back this morning to the biblical book of Leviticus 
some place that you have tried to read 14 times and fallen asleep while doing so. Turn to the very last chapter of Leviticus, and I'm going to try to set out for you a biblical perspective on the concept of the tithe. Now, tithe simply means a tenth, but it means a whole lot more in Christian and Jewish circles. It means a tenth of your increase, a portion of your income which belongs to God. Now, Abraham and Jacob, way back in Genesis, before there was any law, gave tithes. But Leviticus chapter 27 is the first place in the Bible where it is sort of written into the Bible code, where God commands and demands a tithe of his people. Leviticus 27, verse 30 through 32, says this. This is where the tithe begins in terms of God's ordinances. All tithes from the land, whether the seed from the ground or the fruit from the tree, are the Lord's. They are holy to the Lord. Anyone who would redeem a portion of their tithe, it says, they must add one-fifth to them. Verse 32, all tithes of herd and flock, every tenth one passes under the shepherd's staff, shall be holy to the Lord. Now the first point I want to make today by bringing up this scripture is what the tithe is according to the Lord. So in just a few moments, we'll talk about what the tithe is according to the Lord, what the tithe, we'll be going to Deuteronomy, does for us, objections to the tithe, and then what the New Testament has to say about tithing. For God, the tithe is holy. Holy. That means set apart for service to God. That's what he says about our finances. That's what he says about a tenth of our increase, that it is holy to him. It is set apart for service to God. Now, he said this to a bunch of people who didn't have a lot to their name. In fact, he said this to the Israelites while they were at the foot of Mount Sinai, having escaped Egypt as slaves. And the people at that point agreed to the covenant. They said, God, we're for it. And you can imagine why they could do that at that point. God had just miraculously brought them out of slavery in Egypt. They had nothing to their name, and as they left Egypt, it said they plundered the Egyptians because the Egyptians were giving them cattle and gold and food and saying, get out of here. We don't want you here anymore. And I imagine at that point, it was easy to say, yeah, God, when we get into the land that you're giving us, sure, one-tenth of everything that we, that we produce, one-tenth of our increase, it's yours. We got it. But of course, none of that generation even saw the promised land, did they? They didn't. Just Joshua and Caleb saw the promised land. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 6 says, you know, the time will come when your sons will ask you, dads, hey, why are you doing all this stuff for God? And Deuteronomy chapter 6 says, well, because you must remember that we were once slaves, and God has redeemed us miraculously, and we are his people, and we get to partner with him in what he's trying to do. So God's telling them, I want you to give a tenth of your increase before any one of them could have even thought about the increase. They were wandering in the wilderness. Holy to me, says God, set apart for my service. He doesn't say reserve it. He doesn't say set it aside. He says holy, holy. That's a big word. You want to be my holy people, God says to the people of Israel. Here's the baseline concept for holy giving. 
Give me a 10. You keep the 90, you give me what's mine, which is the 10. Later on in the book of Malachi chapter 3, God says that it is his ordinance, otherwise known as an ordinary principle of behavior for the people of God to give a tithe. So for God, the tithe is holy. Turn with me now, if you will, over to Deuteronomy chapter 14, and we're going to talk for a moment about what the tithe means to us. Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 22 and 23. As you're turning there, interestingly enough, that is the last commandment given in the book of Leviticus. It's the very last thing that's given as part of the law. Now, when the Israelites were coming into the land, when the second and third generation who had left Egypt were coming into the land, Moses stops, and the book of Deuteronomy is him reiterating the law. But not only that, Moses then begins to talk about how the law is supposed to be done. Not just the, 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 the bare bones, because Leviticus didn't give us anything other than to say that the tithe was holy and it belonged to God. It didn't tell you what to do with it and how to do it and where to take it, but now Moses is going to tell them. Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 22 and following. Set apart a tithe of all the yield of your seed that is brought in yearly from the field. Now in the presence of the Lord your God, in the place that he will choose as a dwelling for his name, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, your wine, and your oil, as well as the firstlings of your herd and your flock, so that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. What does the tithe do for us? It teaches us to fear the Lord. Now you say, uh, Pastor Matt, that fear of the Lord, there it is again. I remember you saying something about this a few weeks ago, but I've forgotten that message completely. Well, let me go back for just a moment to the definition, the working definition that we have here at Victory Life for the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is a dedicated awareness of just how serious God takes himself and how serious we ought to take him. I mentioned back in our Gray Matters series a few weeks ago that only two times does the Bible tell us how to learn a, the fear of the Lord. By reading the law, or by reading the word of God, and by tithing. It helps us to recognize just how seriously God takes himself, and just how serious we ought to take him. But that's not the end of the story here from Deuteronomy. In essence, God's saying, when God has brought you to the place that he wants you to go, when he's brought you into the land, bring that tithe to the place where his name dwells. And then celebrate. That's what's going on here. They were allowed, with the priests, and after the priests had done the rites with their tithe, they were allowed to sit down and have a meal on that tithe. They were allowed to celebrate with God the fact that God was the source of their income. That's what the celebration is about. When you bring your tithe to God's house, you don't say, ah, stink. What could I have done with that 10% if I hadn't have brought it here? But sometimes that can be our hearts, can it? I remember years ago, when I was just getting started out in ministry, I wouldn't even tell you my base salary because it's laughable. And I had a wife in school and a young child, and I remember so many times that I thought, and this was the enemy at work in my mind, oh, boy, that tithe is a car payment. And I could surely use a car. But when I got here, 
and was able to drop that check. Checks are those things that you write on for those of you who are under 25. You put your name and an amount, you, you tear it off, and you, anyhow. Uh, and I dropped that check in, I would remember what this was all about. Number one, the tithe wasn't mine. But that God, God was the source of my income. And even though I had seven or eight titles in five years, I always had a car to drive. And he always took care of me. Because he's the source. That's why when we bring the tithes into God's house, it's not begrudgingly, it's a celebration. Because what we're saying is, God, you can do better for me with my 90% than I could do with the whole 100. You can do better. And I'm celebrating today in the house of God by giving you the 10% that you call holy and I get to celebrate with you that I know I'm going to get taken care of into the future. I know that you're going to be the source of my income tomorrow. You think that's hard for you? Imagine how hard that was for people living in Israel 1,500 years ago. They were ranchers. They were farmers. And they were bringing that first 10% to God. They weren't guaranteed a great harvest next year. They, they were guaranteed nothing. In fact, they lived in a very war-filled zone. Yet God still commanded it of them, bring in the tithes in recognition and celebration of who gives you the wealth that you have. You know, tithing was eminently practical. There's other verses in the scripture that tell us how it was to be used and how it was to be administrated. But in essence, there's still not much difference today from then other than the cultural changes that take place over 2,000 years. There were priests who were ministering before the Lord. They didn't have an allotment in the land. They weren't farmers. Their job was to be the priest. And somebody had to pay for that. Much the way we pay for the electricity here in the church today, someone had to buy the oil for the temple. You see, there was a practical aspect to the tithe. Because the work of God's ministry needed to get done. And God did have a dwelling for his name. But at the heart of the tithe is not the administration. In fact, the first two times within the law that the tithe is mentioned, the Bible doesn't tell us a lot about the administration. There's other portions of the Bible where it does and what the tithe is to go to and how the tithe is to be administered. But here, it just is trying to get us to the heart. To God, the tithe is holy. To us, it teaches us to fear the Lord, and it tells us to celebrate the tithe when we bring it in, because God is the source of our income. Now, with all that said, I understand that not every denomination and not every independent evangelical church in America preaches the tithe. There are some standard objections to tithing, and I don't want to belittle those this morning. I take the Bible seriously. And I don't just want a proof text for you this morning, though to find a nine-verse uh, nine portion of Scripture that talks about tithing, well, there is one. It's Malachi 3. But I didn't want to go there this morning because I wanted us to stay in a heart mode. And there's some pretty harsh words in Malachi 3, and then there's some pretty great promises, but I didn't want to go there today because I want us to stick in the heart mode today. And I don't want a proof text today, but I want to take seriously the objections that people have to tithing. Some people say, well, tithing is an Old Testament principle. Duh, right, there it is. Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, Malachi, it's in there, it's Old Testament. 
But I want to tell you, there are plenty of Old Testament principles that we still live today. Honor your father and mother. Was that abolished because the New Testament was written? No. Honor the Lord. Was that abolished because the New Testament was written? No. To go a little bit deeper, people will sometimes say, well, well, the tithe was a principle of the law of Moses. It happened within the law, and we are set free from the law. Well, yes, we are set free from the law insofar as the law showed us the sin in our lives and the fact that we could not win righteousness by doing the law. But there's plenty in the law that we still take to be God's ordinances, his principles of ordinary behavior. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, Deuteronomy. How about love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus. So we have to have a, a little bit more nuanced understanding when we look into the New Testament and look into the Old Testament and decide what comes forward and what doesn't. Some might say, well, we're not Jewish, so we don't have to comply. Well, there's a lot of things that we don't have to comply with because we're not Jewish. But as I mentioned to you a few weeks ago when we were talking about the fear of the Lord, when the Bible says that you should tithe and bring your tithe to the place God chooses for his name to dwell, and then says, so that you may fear the Lord your God always, it makes its way for me out of the realm out of the realm of stale, dead ritual and into the realm of holy ordinance from God. When it says this is the way you learn to fear the Lord. And I want to be real clear, the New Testament tells us specifically what parts of the Mosaic law don't apply to us any longer. There's some things that are specifically abolished from the Old Testament that come into the New Ritual purity laws about clean and unclean no longer apply because the Holy Spirit's no longer dwelling in the temple in the Holy of Holies. The Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit is dwelling in us right now. Therefore, all of the external washings and cleansings and bathings and clothing and and ritual, you don't have to do any of that any longer to come into the temple of God because the temple of God is in here where the Holy Spirit dwells. So we know that the ritual purity laws are no longer for us because number one, there's no temple to go to and number two, God has made his dwelling within our hearts. The New Testament specifically abolishes the food laws of the Old Testament for us. Jesus said it, Paul said it, the Acts Council in in Jerusalem in chapter 15 of Acts says it, we no longer have to abide by the ritual food laws. I had crab legs the other day, it was awesome because I no longer have to abide by those ritual food laws. Uh, Gentiles no longer have to be circumcised, and that was even before the law. That was a covenant given to Moses. And of course, Hebrews tells us that the priesthood is abolished because Christ is our head priest, and he's our priest forever. In the order of Melchizedek, it says, Genesis chapter 15, another message, another time. We know what's been abolished, We know because the New Testament told us specifically what has been abolished. But the New Testament doesn't tell us to stop tithing. It doesn't tell us to quit. And as a church, when we see the moral codes of the Old Testament, the ordinances of God, we need to look at those and really ask the question, 
Did God abolish it in the New Testament? Because if he didn't, we have to take a look at this. We have to take a look at this. How do we do this if God didn't change things? Of course, the most standard objection to tithing is, it's not in the New Testament. If I've heard it once, I've heard it many, many times. It's not in the New Testament. What if I told you it was? What if I told you I could show you where tithing is affirmed in the New Testament? Would you become a tither? Because I know that there are some traditions and some places where the Old Testament is like the sad little brother to the New Testament. And the New Testament is big brother who bats 400 on the city league team and, and little brother still playing t-ball and whiffs at the tee, right? But that's not the way we want to view the scripture. We want to view it as a whole and understand that God has a plan. What if I told you that the New Testament, God calling, what if I told you that the New Testament affirm the tithe? Would you tithe then? What if I told you that Jesus affirmed the tithe? Would you tithe then? Turn over to Matthew chapter 23. We're going to take a look at one massive verse in Matthew 23 and see what Jesus has to say. Matthew 23 is Jesus angry. He's yelling at the Pharisees. Well, we don't know that he's yelling, but you would imagine him yelling when he says things like brood of vipers and hypocrites. But anyhow, Jesus is talking about how the Pharisees care so much about the law that they really don't care about people or honoring God anymore. They care so much for rules that they, that they have just missed the heart of what God was trying to do through the law. And this is what Jesus says in regards to their tithe. Matthew 23, verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint, dill, and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. It is these you ought to have practiced without neglecting the others. It is these you ought to have practiced, justice, mercy, and faith, without neglecting the others. Now, I want to talk to you about the ritual, if you will, of the Pharisees here. The Pharisees were not just tithing on their increase. They were so into the law, they were tithing on their window box spices, Mint, dill, and cumin. Those are some pretty good spices. You could, you could, you could cook with those. They, they were tithing on what was growing in their gardens. I mean, they were taking the tithe so very seriously. And if you want to start taking the tithe that seriously, I love basil. Uh, <laughs> Pastor CJ is a garlic guy, all right? Bring those spices into the place where God causes his name to dwell. We will use them. No, no, seriously. Uh, <laughs> I, I do like basil. Anyhow, uh, what's going on here? The, the, the NIV puts it another way. Most of you read the NIV and you despise me for reading out of the NRSV. But anyhow, the NIV says the, that, that, that you should have observed this without neglecting the other, without neglecting the former. Do the latter, but don't neglect the former, is the way I think the NIV says it. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, you know what, Pharisees? It's not about the law. 
It's not, it's not about, you know, the 10% extrapolated to the craziest things. But even if you do begin to walk in justice, mercy, don't neglect to do the other. Don't neglect the tithe. I'm not telling you to neglect the tithe, Jesus says. I'm telling you that there's a deeper matter in the law, and that's this justice, that's this mercy, that's this faith that's supposed to emanate from you. But don't neglect it. Jesus, right in this moment, has a, an option to abolish the tithe, doesn't he? Does he take it? Now, people are so dead set against this concept of tithing that sometimes I can't help but laugh. I was reading a commentary this week. It's a commentator that I read when I'm studying and preparing for sermons, and I I read this guy all the time. I read from a couple of different commentaries just to make sure that I'm not so far off the mark that I'm just off in Matthew land, but that other people have interpreted it specific ways. And one of the commentaries, he did not believe in the concept of tithing. And you know what he said about this verse? He He said, listen, this is not the heart of New Testament giving. The heart of New Testament giving is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Now you say, okay, well, that's fine. Why did he say that? It doesn't matter that he said that. He broke the cardinal rule of commentating. When you write a commentary on the scripture, you need to stay in the scripture that you're in and interpret it the way that it was meant to be interpreted at the time. You don't cite other scripture to make a case against what you're reading. He broke the cardinal rule of commentating in order to try to undermine tithing. Then he said one other statement, and it floored me. He says, nowhere in the New Testament is tithing affirmed. Could you put Matthew 23, 23 up again, Tina? Nowhere in the New Testament is tithing affirmed. As he reads Matthew 23, 23, he says, nowhere in the New Testament is tithing affirmed. Now hold on a minute. How can you read it any other way? Jesus has an opportunity to dispense with the tithe. I've even heard some people say, well, we live under grace now. Therefore, and I say, okay, so if you live under grace, what percentage are you given? 15, 20, 25? If the new covenant's so much better than the old, where's your tithe at? Plus, plus, plus. Jesus didn't destroy the tithe. He affirmed it in this moment. And I understand that there are people who are so set, dead set against the idea that they'll look at Matthew 23, 23, cite 2 Corinthians 9, which was a one-time gift for the people in Jerusalem, and say that's the center of New Testament giving. And then say nowhere in the New Testament is tithing affirmed. Oh my goodness. I mean, for those of you who love the Bible and love commentary, you know that he broke every rule just to say, ah, I don't like the tithe. One other verse from the New Testament that I believe affirms tithing, and then we'll be done on our biblical tithing journey. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 8. Hebrews chapter 7 is not about tithing. I don't want to proof text just to proof text this morning, but there's a parenthetical comment that I don't want us to miss. Hebrews chapter 7 is talking about the priesthood of Jesus, how the Levitical priesthood of the Old Testament, that means through the tribe of Levi, is, has been abolished, and that Christ, the once and for all sacrifice for our sins, is now the one mediator between God and man. So that's what's taking place here. And he's arguing about, or not arguing, but the writer of Hebrews is talking about Melchizedek, a priest who Abraham tithed to way back 500 years before the law was even written. 
But he makes a parenthetical comment in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 8, that I think is so important to this discussion on tithing that I don't want to miss it. And it gets back to the heart of where we're at this morning. The writer of Hebrews chapter 7, verse 8 says, In the one case, tithes are received by those who are mortal. In the other, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. Okay, one of whom it is testified that he lives. Who is that? Jesus. Yes, Sunday school answer. You couldn't have gone wrong. You say Jesus, and 90% of the time you are correct in Sunday school. 2% is Abraham, 2% is David. Jesus, the one of whom it says he lives. What is the writer of Hebrews saying in this parenthetical comment? Yes, when you gave your offering and your tithes today, it went down the hall to be counted by trustees who will administrate that money for the ministry of Christ's kingdom. But do not forget who you tithed to this morning. Who'd you tithe to? Jesus. 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 That's who those tithes go to. I want to speak frankly with you this morning. Peter doesn't say anything about tithing. Paul doesn't say anything about tithing. James didn't preach tithing. But we know that Jesus had a chance to abolish it, and he didn't. Instead, it seems that he affirms it. And we do know that the writer of Hebrews says when tithes are given, they're really given to Christ. They're really given to Christ. You know what the problem is with that system that says we live under grace? There's no discipline in that. There's no discipline. No discipline. I read a statistic this week that among evangelical churches that don't believe in the tithe, the average rate of giving is 1.7% of income. In the greater church in America, America, the richest nation on earth among evangelicals, I'm sorry, not among evangelicals, among all Christians, 2.4%. We live in the richest nation on earth. The richest nation on earth. Our poor people have smartphones. And the rate at which we give into Christ's ministry is really, really poor. That's what happens when we don't set a discipline in our hearts. I am not telling you to tithe this morning. But I believe the scriptures and the words of God himself make a compelling enough case for us to consider making the tithe the starting point of our giving. That, that's the case I'm trying to make this morning. Let me tell you why I tithe. Because I take the Bible seriously in these ways. Numbers 18 says that the priests have to tithe. Now, I'm not a priest. I'm a pastor this morning. But I tithe because Numbers 18 says the representatives of the place where God chooses for his name to dwell must tithe as well. So I tithe. But I don't just tithe because of some thing that took place in numbers directed at the Levitical priesthood. I tithe not because I'm under the curse of the law, but because I'm set free from it. 
I don't tithe to fulfill some Old Testament rule. I tithe to further the kingdom of God. And it brings me joy to be able to do so. I would never preach tithing from the standpoint of, you need to tithe so you can fulfill God's law. You can't. Christ did on the cross to set you free. But God established a system that I believe in, a system which he calls holy, a system by which he says the fear of the Lord is taught, a system by which Jesus collects in order to further his kingdom. That's why I tithe. Not to fulfill the law. And guess what? Tithing doesn't make me a better person. And I'm not telling you today that if you don't tithe, you're a bad person. That's not the point. The point is I believe that God inserted within his ordinances a discipline. And without the New Testament specifically removing that discipline, I believe that it's still the starting point for giving and that God gives us the opportunity to partner with him when we discipline ourselves to celebrate the tithe with him. Now, you keep saying, Pastor Matt, you believe. Well, we believe. Our trustees and our elders and our staff, we believe that it's the starting place for us. I preached last week that the starting place for a heart that is not yet fully given to Christ is to break that spirit that's over us that says, hold on to your wealth. Hold on to what you have. Don't let it go because God could never supply for you if you did. And that's the spirit of the world. Because God says no matter your circumstance, no matter where you are, bring him in and I'll take care of you. Jesus stood at the temple and he watched Pharisees hurling money at the priests, so impressed with what they were doing, so pleased with themselves for the amount and the percentages that they were giving to the work of God. But Jesus saw a widow bringing what the old King James calls what, her, her two mites? for two pennies. I said, listen, she's given more than all of these because that's all she had. But so in love with God is she, and this is my paraphrase, so in love with God is she that it doesn't matter. She trusts God for the future. And I, I, I could take you to Malachi 3 and show you the place where God says, start tithing and test me in this and see if I won't take care of you. But I encourage you today, What's God saying to your heart? What's he saying to your heart? This is not about the church needing cash, folks. We're doing great. It's not about my salary. I make a nice one. This isn't about the rest of the staff wanting raises. We're fine financially. We preach this because we believe it's what God would have us do. It's what God would have us do. We believe in it with all our hearts because we've seen his goodness year after year after year as more and more people say, God, I fear you. 
I take seriously what you're doing. And my offering and tithes today aren't a function of the church. But I'm giving them today to the one of whom it is said, he lives. Will you bow your heads with me? With every head bowed and every eye closed today, I'm going to ask our elders to take their places at this altar. And we're just going to have an open time of prayer this morning. If you'd like to be prayed for because God's speaking something to you through this message, we invite you to come and allow the elders or, or to pray for you or for you to just kneel on this altar. If you want to come for healing in your body today, according to James, the fifth chapter, the elders would love to anoint you with oil and pray for you. If you just want to come and kneel on this altar and pray for a family member who's having a rough time, that's, that's fine. Or maybe you need financial help from the Lord. Whatever it is, this is an open prayer time this morning, and that's why these altars are open each Sunday. You pray where you're at. But for those of you who remain in your seats today, I'm going to ask you a simple question and give to you a simple charge. Lord, how do I evaluate what I've heard today? And what do you want of me? Because I believe that you want the Lord to have your heart and to have sway over how you use the wealth that he's given you. And whether you've tithed for 50 years or whether you're in a place today and you go, this is the first time I've heard of tithing or giving in this fashion, just ask the Lord, Lord, what would you have me do? Because we're not a church full of legalists who wants to pound you and come after you with your giving record. We just want the Lord to speak to you. Because we believe that when the Holy Spirit grabs hold in our hearts, we are changed. So as the band plays, I invite you to pray this morning. These altars are open. And they're going to lead you in a benediction song in just a few moments. Would you bow your heads and do some business with the Lord?